Well, our reading this evening from God's Word comes from 1 Kings chapter 18, 1 Kings 18, which is found on page 299, 299 in the church Bibles, 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, and we continue uh, with Elijah, story of the prophet Elijah. 1 Kings, chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his feet and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. Now you say, Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties, in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. 
So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go and limp in between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped round the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seers of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran round the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God 
and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Let me welcome you if you're here with us tonight and you're new uh, and this is your first time. You're joining us in the middle of a series as we're looking through this book in the Bible, the book of 1 Kings. And um, 1 Kings is a, it's a history book um, charting the, the kind of rise and fall of uh, the kingdom of Israel, God's chosen people. It was around, written, records events that were written around about 900 years before Christ. And well, I say it's a history book, but actually it's more than that. It's a sermon. It's a, it's a big sermon using these events in history that actually happened. And as we've looked at this, we've seen kind of the, the, the big point of this book is to tell us today as God's people the kind of king that we need. So we need a king as God's people. We need a leader. We need someone who is going to be 100% committed to God's word. And as we've seen, all of this was kind of building up a a blueprint for us uh, to help us understand Jesus Christ, who is the, the king of God, the ultimate king, and our king, our ruler. And we've seen also that one of the big problems in the book of 1 Kings, the big problem with Israel the big problem with the, the kings of Israel, the reason that, that they fell, is this problem of division. So think about the kind of main character in the first half of 1 Kings was uh, Solomon. He was Israel's, one of Israel's greatest kings, a great man who was a good, godly man and who had this dramatic fall from grace. And it was because of division. It's because his heart was divided. Uh, one aspect of him wanted to be devoted to God and to help God, but the other aspect of him was um, lured by women, and he ended up having 
uh, over a thousand wives, and his heart was divided. It led to Israel's downfall. The kingdom itself is literally divided, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And there's division in this nation. There's division all throughout 1 Kings. But what we see here is that that division is not just with the kings, not just with the land, but with the people of God themselves. They are divided in their allegiance to God. And in 1 Kings 18, here we see this man, Elijah, who I guess if Solomon's the main uh, character in the first half of 1 Kings, the, the main character in the second half is Elijah. And Elijah is a prophet, which means that he was a, a spokesperson uh, for God. He had kind of a, had a direct access to God, and God would speak to the people through Elijah. Here we see Elijah um, addressing this problem of division that is so prevalent amongst these people. And this is a chapter that, what, this is a, a chapter I think is strikingly contemporary. When you kind of take back all the sacrifices and priests and pagan worship, we are dealing with an issue that is so prevalent and a problem which I think is perhaps one of the biggest problems in the church today. This problem of a divided heart, this problem of a divided allegiance. So, to that end, here's what I want to look at from this chapter. Three very simple points from 1 Kings chapter 18 got them there on the inside of your service sheet. Firstly, I want to look at the problem of a divided heart. Why is this such a big problem? Secondly, the folly of a divided heart. And thirdly, the remedy to a divided heart. So firstly then, the problem of a divided heart. Now we're picking up the story here from last week. Uh, The northern kingdom of Israel is under the rule of this guy, King Ahab. He's quite a pathetic guy. Um, At at this moment, they're having a kind of severe drought uh, throughout the land. Well, I say that Ahab's in charge, but actually it's his wife, the queen Jezebel, who really wears the pants in that relationship. Uh, And she has ordered this kind of mass worship of this pagan god, Baal. Uh, And she is persecuting the people who are worshiping the God of Israel. It was quite striking what um, uh, Richard was praying for and how you see kind of similarities of this event that's happening here 3,000 years ago. And so you have this guy, King Ahab, who's ruling over Jezebel, really, who's ruling through him, enforcing this worship of the pagan god Baal. And what God does to uh, send kind of a, a judgment upon the nation for worshiping this god Baal, and a sign of judgment upon Baal himself, is he sends this drought to Israel because Baal was the god of rain. And we need to bear that in mind in our section that we're going to look at tonight because uh, this kind of mention of rain is what brackets the section. So in verse 1, we see God tell Elijah that he is going to send rain. And then right at the end in verse 45, we see that that promise fulfilled when the rain eventually did come. And I think we have this section in the middle, this section of this conflict between Baal and Yahweh between Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, I think we have this conflict here so that we will be crystal clear that the reason that the rain came back on this land was not because of the devotion to Baal that the prophets had, but only because of the mercy of the God of Israel. 
So this conflict begins with Elijah and Ahab arranging a showdown on Mount Carmel. It's time to see who the real God is. So Ahab gathers 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, who's a pagan goddess, and all the people of Israel. And they gather them together at this place, Mount Carmel. And this is what Elijah does. Uh, They arrange a showdown in which they're going to set up two sacrifices and the God who answers by fire will be the real God. But look at what Elijah says to the people in verse 21. This is the key verse for tonight. Verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So this is the problem. This is what's gone wrong with Israel. It's not that they've abandoned God, because they've not. It's just that they're trying to fuse together uh, worship with Baal to worship with the Lord. They're going back and forth between Baal and between God. Uh, limping is a, it's a great translation of that Hebrew word. It, uh, it kind of implies this, this half-hearted devotion of trudging backwards and forwards with a heart that's, that's torn in two. It's unsure. It's unsettling. It's why they can't respond to Elijah. They don't know what to say to this accusation. And Elijah says to them, look, today you need to pick a side. Now, why is this such a big deal? I mean, look, look at what he's saying. It's almost, it's almost as if he is saying it's better to be like Jezebel and to be fully devoted to the worship of Baal than it is to be the kind of person who sits on the fence. I mean, it's quite shocking. Why is he making such a big deal? It may sound extreme, Perhaps some of you, it may sound narrow. It may even sound petty because this is God speaking through Elijah, saying to his people that you cannot worship anything else apart from me and me alone. You have to be wholeheartedly devoted to me. Well, here's why it's not petty. We've got to remember who these people are. The, the people of Israel, they're not, they're not skeptics. They're not um, the kind of people who are uh, trying to weigh out different claims for different religions and they're kind of sitting on the fence because they don't know which one uh, is true. These are, are God's people. These are people who have made a commitment to God. And in order to understand why this is so bad what they are doing, why it's so bad to have that divided heart, we need to understand what it means to follow God. We need to understand what it means, well, to be a Christian. And the language that the Bible uses of following God, of being a Christian, is not just kind of um, like you adopt an idea or an understanding of the world. It's the language of marriage. It's about being in a relationship with God. It's like that that passage that Robin read to us. It's about loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Now, can you imagine a married person sitting on the fence with their spouse? So, yeah, they would say that they're married, but they also like to, you know, to sleep around. They like to keep their options open. Can you see how, how horrible and how hurtful that would be. It's not petty for a husband or a wife to demand the full devotion of their spouse. It's loving. 
but Israel's not wholeheartedly devoted to God. They are, well, they're committing spiritual adultery. If that was us, we would leave them, but God, God still wants them. That's why he's saying here through Elijah, pick a side. You can't have it both ways. What Elijah is saying in verse 21 is a call to Israel to forsake that spiritual adultery and to come back to God. It's actually immensely gracious and it's immensely challenging as well for us today. I'm guessing not many of us will be um, tempted to Baal worship. Um, But well, let's think about this. Why was, why do you think Israel was tempted to worship Baal? I think one of the big reasons we see in this text is because everyone's doing it. It's been passed by royal decree. It's the the easy option. Uh, Baal worship was also a historic religion. It was rooted in tradition. Baal worship appealed to the, the sensual pleasures. So, for example, if you were a farmer and you worshipped Baal uh, and your crops weren't growing, then what you would have to do is go to the temple and sleep with one of the temple prostitutes uh, to try and coax Baal into sending the rain. You can see why, why that was a popular religion. And it was what everyone round about them was doing. Now, today we won't be tempted into worshipping Baal, but we might be... There is a temptation, though, to follow the, the more socially acceptable idols of our culture. See, here's the thing. This is not a million miles away for, from us because every single human being is made to worship. And we will always worship someone or we will always worship something. It might not be a, a pagan deity, but ask yourself this question. What is the one thing I need more than anything else in my life for it to have worth or value? What do I desperately need for my life to have any worth or my life to have any value? And think carefully how you would answer that because the answer to that question, and think honestly, the answer to that is very revealing. It reveals what what your God is. It reveals what your your Baal is. The thing that, that will threaten your allegiance to Jesus. So your career, your reputation, your money, your success, your relationships, your, your family. And it's not that these are bad things. It's not that we shouldn't care about these things. In fact, the Bible makes clear that these are gifts from God. But it's when we take these things and make them more important than Jesus, or, or we make them of equal importance to Jesus, which is what they were doing here in 1 Kings 18. And if you do that, then you're going to divide your heart. So for example, and this is a personal example, this was um, something I struggled with personally, but you can say, you know, yeah, I follow God. Yeah, I, you know, I go to church. I believe the gospel. I believe in Jesus. But what you really care about more than anything is your reputation and how you appear to others. You don't want to appear like the, the narrow-minded Christian. So, so you do stuff that you know the Bible says is wrong because your main concern is to be accepted by the crowd. And what you have to do, if you're, to, if you're going to live like that, uh, you, to, in order to balance that up, um, that kind of dual lifestyle between cr- following God and, and worshiping this idol, is, you kind of have to have this divided allegiance. So on one side, there is the, the church me, 
There's the me that appears in front of other Christians. And on the other side is the university me or the, the work me or the, the social me. And I've got two different lifestyles, two different opinions that, that you sort of limp backwards and forwards between. Being a good, committed Christian on a Sunday, but not the rest of the week. Listen to the call of Elijah here in verse 21. Choose now who you're going to follow. If the Lord is God, follow him. Pick who it is that you want to follow. Pick what lifestyle you want and commit to it. Don't say you follow Jesus if you're not going to live like you follow Jesus. Don't, you know, some of you might be tempted. Some of you might have come out of, of, of backgrounds um, of various different religious backgrounds and you're tempted to merge that religious background that you came out of with Christianity. Or we might be tempted to, to merge what is culturally acceptable with Christianity and create this kind of false god. But one of the markers of being wholeheartedly committed is that you will be different. You'll be different to the surrounding culture. We've got to choose Who are you committed to, really? Who are you going to follow? Because this is a serious problem. It's so serious. In verse 40, do you see what happens to the prophets of Baal? Elijah takes them down and and executes them. This is how seriously God takes this issue. Remember Jesus' words as well in Matthew 7. He is speaking to people who are claiming to be Christians And he talks about how on the day of judgment, there will be people who say, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because of that problem of that half-hearted commitment of wavering between two opinions. Divided heart is a huge problem. God wants that wholehearted devotion to him. And it's not only a huge problem, it's also foolish. And that's the second point, the folly of a divided heart. I think this is, this is really what's brought out in this confrontation of Mount Carmel. And the whole point is to try and get Israel to see how foolish idolatry is. It's foolish because Baal's not real. The God of Israel, the God who answers by fire, he is the one true God. He is the one that our hearts are made to worship. And look at the contrast between Baal and the Lord that we see in this section that that really bring that out. There's three big contrasts. Firstly, unlike Baal, the Lord does not need to be coaxed into action. So unlike Baal, the Lord does not need to be coaxed into action. The the prophets of Baal, they're trying to get him to act, to send this fire. Uh, And look at verse 26 of the text. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped. There's that word again. They limped round the altar that they had made. So look at what Elijah says in response to them in in verse 27. It's not very PC. Um, Elijah's not up for interfaith services. Look what he says, verse 27. And at noon... Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. And that means what you think it means. Uh, Or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And so what do they do in response to that? They they try and work harder to get get Baal uh, 
to act. They start slashing themselves with spears and, and calling out passionately all day for Baal to act. Now, Elijah's, Elijah's making fun of them, but he's actually making a very serious point here as well in his mockery. You know, these people view Baal as essentially just like a larger version of themselves. So he has human attributes, and Elijah says, well, maybe he's away on holiday, or maybe he's relieving himself, or maybe he's inconvenienced, or maybe he's asleep. And that's what idolatry is when when we make gods in our image. That's why it's so foolish. And there's a sharp contrast between Baal and all this kind of work that's trying to get Baal to answer and the God of Israel. How do we see God respond in verse 37 to 38? Elijah prays a simple prayer and instantly the fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. God doesn't need to be coaxed into action. We've got to be careful actually that that we don't think like that, that we think if we just do enough things then, then God will eventually act. Secondly, unlike Baal, the Lord is not hindered by obstacles. So in the showdown, I guess the favors would be heavily in uh, Baal's favor. Mount Carmel, the place itself, is a holy site to Baal. Um, it's, it's the home turf, as it were. Uh, there's around 450 prophets of Baal on one side, and then on the other side, there's one guy. There's Elijah, the one prophet of God, the only one who's left. The others are all either killed by Jezebel or in hiding. And not only is that odds against him, but look at what Elijah does. Verse 32, he wants to increase these odds, as it were. Uh, Verse 30, sorry, Elijah said to all the people, come near to me, and all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sihas of seed. And he put, wood in the, he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And he did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And he did it a third time. And the water ran round the altar and filled the trench also with water. See, this is the point. If the Lord is God, then nothing, no matter what the obstacle, nothing can hinder him from answering. The true God works the impossible, and when he responds with fire, the author of 1 Kings tells us that it consumes everything. The stones, the wood, the sacrifice, the water itself is licked up by the fire that falls from heaven. Finally, most importantly, unlike Baal, the Lord answers. Look at the end of verse 26. But there was no voice and no one answered. And then look at verse 29, right at the end there. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. It's emphatic, nothing of all that religious devotion and all that ceremony, nothing. Because Baal is a nobody. He's not there. He doesn't exist. 
And it's a sharp contrast to the Lord. That title that's used in our Bibles there, all in capitals, Lord, um, that's a, a kind of English translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. And Yahweh means I am. See, he is. He is the God who exists. He, he is so different because he is. He's not the God of the rain or, or the God of the sun. He just simply is. There is no other eternal, ever-existing, unchanging God. And the real God hears. The real God answers by fire. Why is it, why is it foolish to worship God instead of... Why is it foolish to worship something else instead of God? Or to worship something else alongside God. Well, it's foolish because at the end of the day, there is only one true God. There is. It's a very exclusive claim. But that's what this text is saying. There is only one true God. And when you put something in his place, it will always let you down because idols are non-existent. Idols are silent. And idols can give you nothing. So just think about what's the thing just now What's the thing that's threatening to divide your heart? If the other God you worship is your career or your comfort or your reputation or whatever it is, then you'll know you're worshiping that thing and you give everything to it. You might not uh, slash yourself like the prophets of Baal did, but you will sacrifice so much for the sake of that idol. You may sacrifice your relationships or your time or your money or whatever it is. And then when you do finally achieve that which you thought would bring the ultimate satisfaction, it will let you down. Because it's not God. It's a silent, dead nothing. Everything that we achieve will eventually fade out. We are made for the eternal I am. That's why we exist. And to be bound to him and no one else is is not constricting. It's wonderfully liberating. To be wholeheartedly devoted to God is a wonderful thing. Again, think of a, a marriage when you make that commitment on your wedding day to forsake all others for the sake of that person. It's not a constricting thing that you do. It's it's a wonderful thing because that's the person you're meant to be with. This is the God that we are made to be with. And that's why he wants our our full allegiance to him. St. Augustine once famously said, Our hearts are restless, O God, and they will be forever restless until they find their rest in thee. So thirdly, then, finally, what's the remedy to a divided heart? If we're struggling to to really give our all for Jesus— Uh, and we feel that we're being tugged in different directions by different temptations, how can we be wholeheartedly committed to God? Because that's what this passage is wanting wanting us to get. That's what the original readers were meant to hear when they read of this passage, how God wants them, how God wants to win their hearts back to, to him. Well, here's three big things, I think. Three things that will... Um, help us to love God more because remember it's all about relationship and these are three things that you never ever stop doing even if you think I am on fire for Jesus you need to keep doing these three things every day firstly remember the God who is gracious remember the God who is gracious so this the kind of the whole setup here the whole idea of fire coming down 
and consuming a sacrifice was not an alien concept to people in the Old Testament. Um, We see it elsewhere in passages like Leviticus and 1 Chronicles. And it's always used as a sign that God has accepted the sacrifice. So fire is often symbolic of God's judgment. And it's as if his judgment has gone on the sacrifice. And so God's saying, look, I accept that sacrifice. Your sins are forgiven. And what Elijah is doing here is he's not just like seeking to offer proof, but he's wanting to show the people that there's that subtle invitation back to God, that there is that reconciliation, a way back. See, the fire falling not only shows them that God is the one true God, but it shows them that God is the one gracious God. And for us today, where we don't have fire falling from the sky, well, actually, we've got something much better, much more sure, much more certain. Not when God sent fire, but when God sent his son, Jesus. Jesus is, is God in the flesh, and he is the, the greatest evidence of the unique claims of Christianity. So some of you might be here and you might be skeptics and, and you know, you might genuinely be on the fence, not because you're trying to hold two views in balance, but honestly because you don't know what's true. And you're trying, trying to figure out what is truth. And the claim of Christianity is that God came down as one of us, that radical claim. So examine that claim, weigh it up. It, it is Jesus who ultimately makes Christianity unique. It's Jesus who stands out against every other worldview. And it's Jesus who not only shows us the true God, but shows us how we can be accepted by the true God. For Jesus came to make sure that we could all be accepted by God. And he does so once and for all, not by offering a bull as a sacrifice, but by offering himself as the sacrifice, as he died on that cross. And it was there that we could say that the metaphorical fire of heaven fell upon Christ and consumed him. That the judgment of God fell upon Jesus and consumed him so that it would never have to consume us. That's the invitation of the cross. That you and I as sinful people will come to the cross and we will always, 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 no matter what we have done, find acceptance and find forgiveness. So if we are struggling with this divided lifestyle, remember the God who is gracious. God wants us, despite our spiritual adultery, despite all that we have done, he wants our hearts. It's the whole point of this Elijah narrative. Why do you think we've got, it's really interesting, at this point in Israel's history, the southern kingdom's doing quite well, Judah. The kings are doing okay. But the author of One Kings is just focusing for so many chapters on Elijah and his dealing with Israel. Why is he doing that? He's trying to show us that God is relentless in his compassion and mercy and his desire to bring his people back to him. Second thing we must do, listen to the God who answers. You know, one of the big themes I think we see throughout 1 Kings is this um, call to be obedient to God's word. Verse 18, what's the problem with Ahab? Uh, He has abandoned God's commandments. Uh, And look at Elijah's prayer uh, at the end of verse 36. He did all these things according to God's word. 
See, it's a devotion to God's word, ultimately, that will show us whether or not we are devoted to God himself. So this here, this, this Bible, if you really want to be single-minded towards God, if you really want to, to love him with your whole heart, soul, and mind, you need to be listening to him. Because he is a God who is not silent. He is a God who is there, a God who speaks, the God who answers. And here we have his words. And not only do, do we listen, but we listen and obey. That means that, remember, that, like, that following, if we talk about following God as being relational, as loving him, it means that there's probably going to be stuff in the Bible that we find difficult. To be honest, I, I wouldn't have minded if this story had ended at chapter 39, uh, verse 39, sorry. There's difficult bits. Verse 40 is a very difficult bit, but we should expect that. And the person who is swaying between two opinions, they will keep bits of the Bible that they do like and ignore the bits of the Bible that they don't like, but that's not listening to God. You know, as I was reminded of this, I heard a good illustration of this by a minister called... Um, Tim Keller, who's a minister in New York. And he said it's like that film, The Stepford Wives. I don't know if you've ever seen that film. But it's about these kind of um, geeks, I guess we could call them, uh, who build these robotic wives. Uh, And the only thing these wives can say is, yes, dear, yes, dear. Uh, And they think this is great. they kind of got this perfect relationship where a wife just says, yes, dear, yes, dear. But it's not real. It's not a real relationship if your wife who's just, con- just constantly saying yes to you. But that's what we try and do with God sometimes. We try and create a, a Stepford God, a fake one. So we take out the bits of the Bible that we find difficult and hard so that the bits that we are left with are just the bits where God says, yes, dear. It's the God in, in our image, the, the idol, not the real God. This is the words of the real God. And if you really want to be committed to him, we have to listen to him and we have to obey what he says and take very seriously what he says. Not try and squeeze him into some culturally acceptable mold. It's not easy. It's not easy. There's stuff in the Bible that's really difficult. There's stuff that's hard to do. There's stuff that I don't understand. But it will mean that we have to be willing to stand out against the culture because the Bible is different to the culture. And maybe it's great that we have the example of Obadiah at the start here. Maybe that's just silently like Obadiah, faithful Obadiah who's hiding those prophets. Or maybe it has to be a very public stand like Elijah on Mount Carmel. Thirdly, and finally, we need to pray to the God who hears. So Elijah in 1 Kings 18 knows Not only does God speak, but because he is real, God listens. He prays, God sends fire. He prays, God sends rain at the end. Verse 42, I quite like that little detail. He prays on Mount Carmel, where Baal was essentially defeated. Because he is there and because he is real, he is the God who hears the God who answers our prayers. And he doesn't need to be, we've got to be careful, he doesn't need to be coaxed into action like Baal. You know, Jesus warns of this in Matthew 6. He warns of the difference between praying like the Gentiles or the pagans and praying like someone who's got a genuine relationship with God. And the pagans like to pray very long, lengthy prayers thinking that, that they'll be heard because they've done, uh, prayed for so long. 
We can't pray that, like that, thinking that somehow if we just devote ourselves to 24 hours of prayer, then God's got to act. As if it's down to us and if it's down to, to our devotion. And so people say things like, um, prayer accomplishes great things. And I know what, what they're trying to say, but that puts the onus on us that if we pray, great things will happen. When we pray, it's not, it's not us that's accomplishing these great things to our devotion, but it's us aligning ourselves with the God who accomplishes great things. Genuine prayer is about leaning on God's sovereignty. Genuine prayer, Jesus says, thy will be done. It's praying to God and trusting in him. So examine your prayer life. I think that's a really interesting way to to really see, am I wholeheartedly committed to Christ? What's your prayer life like? I know a lot of us will struggle with prayer. And I don't mean the frequency of it, though that is important. But Robert Murray McShane, who's a minister from Dundee, and all good ministers are from Dundee. Robert Murray McShane used to say this, what I am on my knees is all I am before God. And what he means by that, look at your prayer life, what you pray behind closed doors, not when everyone else is there in a prayer meeting, but behind closed doors, what is it you pray for? And if it's just prayer for stuff that you need, then that's very revealing, I think. But are we praying for Jesus and his kingdom? Are we praying for the lost that they would come to know Christ? Are we praying that the church would grow? Are we praying that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his field? Are we praying for that deeper understanding of him? It's not that our needs don't matter. Of course they do. And we've got to bring everything to God in prayer. But what else are we praying for? It's very revealing as to where our hearts are. So remember the God who is gracious. Listen to the God who answers and pray to the God who hears. And in all that, we will be drawn closer and closer to love this God. And all that, we will be drawn closer to say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Don't limp between two opinions. Choose now who you're going to follow. Let's pray together. Father, we see in this passage the importance of prayer. We see that you're the God who hears, and you're the God who answers. And so, Father, we pray now for our church, for ourselves. We pray that you would help us identify the things that threaten um, our allegiance to Christ. Father, we pray that we would put Jesus above everything. We pray that we'd love Jesus more than anything. We pray that we'd give all that we have and all that we are to Jesus. May his kingdom really be our priority, not our comfort or anything else, but may the kingdom of Christ be our priority. And Father, as we've been praying for the persecuted church, we remember those who are making a stand for Jesus right now, and it's terrifying. Those who, like Obadiah, perhaps are fearing for their lives because they are going against the law of the land. Those who are being like Elijah, standing up for God, even though it may seem like the world is against them. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters now, again, who are suffering and facing persecution and loss of life and loss of family because they're committed to you, God. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to have that unwavering commitment. We might not face some 
of the persecution that others face, but it's still hard. And there's still many temptations that threaten to lure us away from the gospel. We pray, Father, that we would see the beauty of Christ, that we would marvel at the wonder of the love that you have shown us through the cross. We thank you that even though we muck up, we're always forgiven and always accepted. We thank you that we don't have to do what the prophets of Baal did, of having to give this mindless devotion in order to get you to act. We thank you that you have given us everything in Christ, and that is only by your grace, not by what we have done. So teach us, Lord, and help us to love you with our whole hearts. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to be like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.